friends. I, too, am a covenant member here at SOMA. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 5, 27 to 30, on your page 810 of the Black Bibles. You have heard it. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, <laughs> here we find ourselves. Um, I have been now granted an official PG-13 uh, rating and license. I'm try to fix this clicking issue because this really bothered me last service. If this gets any better or worse, take it as the active wrath of God. Um, either way... Um, I'm a student of culture, and so I've watched enough PG-13 movies uh, to kind of know what that means. And I just want to talk to you in case you're just like, I don't know what does that mean? Like, what's the, what's the guideline we're going off of here? Uh, it means that you can talk modestly about sexual content, uh, which we will. Um, we can uh, initiate into low gore violence if uh, desired. And in a fit of passion, I can use a tastefully placed F-bomb. And uh, if you're new to Soma and you're like, is he get, like, what kind of churches? Um, I will give you the next 40 minutes to wonder. And uh, either way, a couple other disclaimers though, because I do want to appropriately set some stages and talk to some people before I talk to you people. Um, one is I know that on a level you might be just being like, man, this is an awkward text. And maybe you're someone who, like, I'm actually enough of a skeptic or I'm just, like, not comfortable enough at church that I find it awkward enough when people start getting up and talking authoritatively from the Word of God. Uh, and then you add on that what the Word of God is going to say about sexual life and, and all that it is going on in culture gets even worse. And then you add in, like, physical body mutilation in the fires of hell, and you've got a real cocktail for a fun morning. And, yeah, okay, uh, that's true. Um, and I, again, on a certain level, you just might be like, I, I'm just like this, I'm really uncomfortable ever since we said, you know, the 13. And uh, let me just say to you, I, just to let you know my heart, want to engage directly with some cultural ideas and do that with direct language. None of it is an attempt to be crass for crassness sake. It is all simply with the hope and intent of being able to communicate about things that I think historically, historically churches have maybe not been able to or willing to step into. Um, and so it's just know that is the heart behind that. And then also for those who are like, man, when I hear people talk about the word of God, again, talking with sexuality, I just think like, man, it's repressive. Maybe it's oppressive, you know, rep repressive if you inflict it on yourself, oppressive if someone else does. And it's backwards and has uh, very little to do with reality and how we live right now. And, and we've askewed it. And I would say that maybe two things. One, don't tune me out, please. I give me and give Jesus his day in court here. And you can 
go and hit like love handle for brunch after this and talk about it. Uh, and that's fine. You can pare down every point that I make. And thanks for the invite, by the way. I'd like to come. But uh, uh, either way, I can't. I got to tear down. All right, either I, I digress. But uh, either way, um, you, you, there might be this, that sense of like, okay, it's tough for you to hear in this moment. But what if there is something far more beautiful, far more profound, far more satisfying, far more bring, able to bring wholeness to your soul than how we've engaged in what we've experienced sexuality in our culture? What if there's actually something to this? So again, just to tear it out. And then... Um, lastly, I'd like to talk to the those who are here, and it's tough for you to listen because either by your past or your present, there's a lot of shame that has just triggered instantly. I do believe there are at times and in places healthy shame, and there might even be a level of healthy shame that is arising in people and will arise in people, and I don't want to discredit that because I think, again, it's healthy shame. Do know that even as people experience healthy shame in the scriptures, in the presence of Jesus, he does not come with condemnation and hellfire. He tends to come with freedom and pathways forward. So wherever you're at, wherever you've been, it is not my goal to heap that upon you. It is my goal to cast a vision for you of what I think, if we're honest with ourselves, what you actually want on a deep, deep-seated level. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Father God, I am continually convinced as I look at this text and as I compare it to our cultural moment that while there is a lot of reasons for someone not to show up this morning, I'm just glad for those of us here that have gathered together because I think this is a really, really important text and a really, really important sermon for where we find ourselves. And Lord, I know that there's people that they don't fit in any of the categories I just fit, and they're wondering if this has any level to be important to them outside of if you are male and struggling with a pornography addiction. But the truth is, is while that obviously is not in mind in this moment, that there is something here that touches on every single human in the room. Because I think Jesus, and I think you are clear to show, Jesus is getting at an extremely human reality, something at the bedrock of who we are. Lord, I think that these random examples are not random at all, and, and Lord, I pray that we would see them not as just helpful things to deal with anger and deal with lust and deal with honesty, but you would rather show that you are going deeper and deeper into the core of who we are. And again, I, I think everybody has to engage with this text, regardless of what they would say to, do you struggle with lust or not? So Lord, give, uh, give us the ability to see this, Lord, for everyone to engage with it right now. I pray your spirit would do the work, and we would humbly receive from that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
There was a study done, I don't know when it was, but I just heard of it recently, called Human Universals. And the concept of this was to try to study every single culture as it exists in our world and to either perform a study on this culture and society uh, to understand what they're like, what they do, what they affirm, what they value, what they disaffirm, what they disavow. And if there was a credible study already done, that was accepted because it would have taken umpteen million years if they had to perform each of these individually. But they accomplished it. They were able to collect data on every known humanity in the world. And the goal, again, was to find out what are things that link everybody, no matter what, you, what climate you live in, no matter uh, what continent or what the culture is. Are there things that are true just for simply being human? And they found a lot of things that were interesting but not necessarily helpful, such as uh, flowers are universally recognized as pretty. And uh, we, we universally count age. I, every culture does that. Uh, and we uh, universally find snakes to be evil in some way in our culture, which is interesting, I guess. But again, not overly helpful, I guess, unless you're preaching Genesis 3, you know. Uh, but uh, still, not here in this moment. So if you go into the data, though, what they really key in on, the most crucial thing they found were five universal human needs, which drive five reciprocal universal fears. So each of the need has the reciprocal fear, and they are in every culture in this world. And the first one is immediately obvious, and I think it's easier to kind of like figure out the fears than the needs, because I think we just traffic and fear more in our lives, and if I just ask you what are you afraid of, you could probably give me 20 things right now, but only five of them would be universal, and the first thing everyone is afraid of, of course, if I were just to ask you, what is the number one thing that people in this world are afraid of, you'd probably say... This is real. This is not rhetorical. Thank you. Whoa. You don't have to phrase it in the form of a question. Just got to say it. Um, and you all knew that, but you're like, I, I'm not, not doing it. Um, you can't make me. Um, you're right. I can't make you do anything. I've long recognized that from this place. Um, <laughs> either way, uh, so death is obviously number one, and the reciprocation is a universal desire for security. The number two is more interesting, and I don't know if we'd phrase it like this, but we'd probably get the concept. The number two idea is a universal fear of the outsider. And the reciprocal need is a desire, a need for community. Because there is just, uh, we see that right now in culture. There's a sense of here is my people and those are those people, and I have a real struggle embracing the other, whether that be across class or race or gender or neighborhood or anything you can find that but what's interesting is it's not like okay it it embraces this need for just like there to be no outsiders but rather is to have a community and here's why i think because it's not just that we fear the outsider and therefore we need to make a group we also are desperately afraid of being the outsider of finding ourselves in a situation where we are without community we are isolated. We are alone. The way we've said it historically at Selma is there is a deep, deep, universal human need for everyone who breathes in this moment to be fully known by someone and simultaneously fully loved by that person. And on the reciprocation of that, there is a deep, deep human desire 
for you to fully know someone and fully love them in the midst of knowing. I mean, we see the desire to be known if you just engage with children on any level because they are unchecked human desires. And I walked out to help my wife and our kids get in, totally biffed it on the sidewalk, so we can just make that a thing that we can just like, well, I'll be like, I know you did, I did too, my wrist hurts right now. And, uh, and I did not go down on the side with the microphone or that would have really been loud. But either way, it, uh, and then my son proceeded to walk in here and tell every single person because we said, hey, remember how you fell down? He told every single person, I fell down on the way to the car. He wanted to tell everybody, he's probably telling his people in right there, I fell down because he wants to be known. Even at the level of he wants you to know he fell on his hindquarters as he walked to the car. Because we desire to be known. And we desire to be fully loved and to experience the other. Which is why the most beautiful and yet tragic, because it is not true in this current side of eternity, verse in the whole Bible is Genesis 2.25. And I mean, you can make an argument in a lot of these, but this is just one of them. That when God makes man and woman, he puts them in the garden and he puts them in naked and unashamed. It is what we all long for. It's what we were designed for, to be fully naked before another and be fully accepted before that person. Beyond just physical nakedness, you can want to be emotionally naked before someone. To show, here are all my fears. Here's everything I worry about. Here's everything that I enjoy. I want to be emotionally present before you and yet accepted. And to be spiritually naked. Here is all that I believe, here's all that I struggle and worry and doubt. Here is everything I think about the most fundamental and profound questions of existence. We long to be intellectually naked, that here's what I think, here's what I know, here's what I don't know, here's what I fear to ask and yet don't know, and accept it in the midst of that. And there is another part of a human universality that is very true in this moment that I have to point out because it is immediately applicable to what we're talking about right now. We all have a universal human desire to believe a lie that we can shortcut that process. All of our cultural zeitgeist says can we find a way to do things that we want faster or more efficiently or with less pain involved? That's the promise of technology. And honestly, that's the promise of Staples circa a few years ago, which I know, like, culture is, like, at such a rapid pace right now. It can be, like, a viral yesterday and irrelevant today. And so it's a far cry for me to ask you to reach, like, back into 2013 and recognize the ad campaign by Staples, which was dominated by the That Was Easy button. And it was a campaign where on the commercials, they just started by saying, like, hey, if you're, like, struggling with some sort of office problem, you hit this button, and all of a sudden it's solved by the Staples staff, and you will find yourself saying, that was easy. And they were so brilliant that they realized, hey, we can market this at the level that we can actually just sell buttons that people put on their desk so that when they're struggling, they can hit it. And it does nothing except for declare that was easy. And it doesn't do anything to alleviate the problem that you had. You might have alleviated a problem and then push the button. The button wasn't involved. It was just the declaration thereafter. A and so 
we continue, though, to feel like there's a sense of like, hey, if I just push the button, it can, it can create easiness. It can create what I want with ease. Why, in the same way, do we as people push the sex button, expecting intimacy, fulfillment, and being known and being loved? to come out on the other end. And the way in which most of us push it, it never does. But yet we keep pushing the button and pushing the button, expecting something might change. I don't know if that button for you is a link or a trackpad or a touchscreen or if that is a send on a text to hook up or if it's to buy an hour of someone's time or to swipe left or swipe right or to push play on something that you have neither of you have an intention of watching but we keep pushing the button some of you maybe have gone so disillusioned with the idea that intimacy is not coming out on the other end, that you are simply just addicted to the act of pushing the button with no hope, even if it is probably a painful act to do so, because you realize maybe you discredit the idea that we can even obtain the intimacy and level of being known that we actually desire. Some of you are doing this in the context of a marriage. Because, let's be straight, you can be married to someone in a monogamous marriage relationship and still find yourself pushing the sex button and having no intimacy come out on the other side. Some of you are doing this, you're pushing the button by refusing to push the button, which is really weird. But you, again, have grown so disinterested that you're saying I will remove myself from all sexual experience. I will live in a functional celibacy aesthetic moment of depriving myself. But the crazy thing is is that even those who practice aestheticism are desiring the exact same thing for those who experience hedonism. A deep filling powerful just going about it at wildly opposite ways. Whether you are going one extreme or the other or you find yourself in the middle, know this, and it's critical. Sex is way, 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 way too small to be worshipped. It can't handle the weight. But sex is way way, way, way too beautiful to be demonized. You can't deify it. You can't demonize it. It's too small, yet too beautifully important. So with that, I want to engage Jesus because I think that this text had a real profound shape to even the paradigm that I have seen it in the past.
this week as I've engaged and studied it. So I just want to look at three things. I want to look at the problem the text is going to reveal. I want to look at the path that the text is going to give and then the power to actually take that path, which might actually be the money for us. And so verse 27, the problem, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. They had seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this, again, is the part where people be like, okay, Jesus, that's at best impossible and at worst repressive. I mean, I get maybe in your culture where there was like forced burqa wearing and everything that maybe you could not look at a woman lustfully in a heart or at a man. But, I mean, we live in a day and age that you can't go through Aldi without being assaulted with soft porn. So, like, on some level, there's not a connection to reality with the Son of God here, at least not in our cultural moment. Um, but Jesus is, you need to understand a couple things of his worldview that he's trying to bring in. And I think they still apply to ours. All cultures have recognized that there are things, there are desires that need to be repressed. That is also universally true. It's not always the same ones, but it is some of them. And you would, of course, put forward our cultural moment of like, well, we are at a place where it's like, do not repress any desire, but act on any desire and let your desire be your lead. Even in our culture, while there is a small subset of people who are getting a disproportionately loud voice right now, who would affirm that if you have a desire to voice racist ideas, that you should do it loud and proud, the large majority of our culture, and I would say the ultimate condemnation of our culture, would say, no, you don't do that. You rightfully repress, even if you believe it to be true, racist implications or condemnations of, of people on race or class or, or other things. So even our culture finds things that we say, no, there are desires that are maybe natural to some people or maybe natural to their upbringing that should be repressed. And, and Jesus is going to say that maybe we should consider adultery because in some cultures, in many cultures, adultery has been a repressed desire or a desire that should be repressed in people's eyes. I know we hear all these stories about a spouse who cheats on the other sexually, has an affair, and the first spouse is able to, or the one who was offended, is able to find it in their heart and find it with time, the ability to forgive and even to have a vibrant marriage. And those are awesome, beautiful stories. But if you've ever actually seen one in process, they're the most horrifically horrifying experiences of a humanity that you can see. Because there are few things more damaging you can do to a human being whose fundamental desire is to be fully known and fully loved and partially know them and walk away or walk towards someone else and either declare with your actions or maybe your words, you are known and not loved. Or you are known and insufficient. And so I desire to know more. There's very few things you can do that are more damaging to a person's soul than that. And so while it might become beautiful if they can walk through years and years and years of forgiveness and pain, it is hell to get there. Because adultery is a horrific reality. And Jesus ups the ante on human dignity. Just like last week with anger, he says, hey, 
just because you have not decided to commit a shiv to their head does not mean that you and her are cool. Because you have raging bitterness that is flaring up at every turn, every time they speak, every time their name comes up. You guys aren't cool. Because they have a soul, and so do you, and you're playing damage to both of them, though you're never actually committing it to physically speaking the word. And similarly, you can't say, oh, like there's been no exchange of body fluid or touching of genitalia. Therefore, there is no sin here in regards to adultery. And Jesus is going to say, similarly, you are neglecting the fact that that person's body possesses a soul. To which C.S. Lewis says, if you could see the beauties or the travesties of what has happened to people's souls in their lifetimes, if we could see into that spiritual reality, we would be tempted to run in terror or fall in worship because our souls are eternal. They are far more beautiful and damaged than we can fathom by looking at a person's skin. And it is a way divorce, or not divorce, lust, divorce is coming, One controversial at a time, Ken. Come on, slow down. Lust and adultery have a way of so damaging that repressed, yeah. I mean, actually, Jesus is going to use crucify your desires. He actually goes stronger than repressed if you want to go just straight Jesus. And let's really quick just define lust because it's often used, rarely defined, and I think sometimes we can get, we can put too many things in the lust bucket that actually aren't there. It's easier to go negative first. Here's what lust is not. It is not recognition of beauty. You can recognize beauty even in another human being and not be in the midst of lust. It's not even, here's another layer deep, recognition of sexual attraction towards another human. I can experience a certain level of in-the-moment biological sexual attraction towards a human being that is not my spouse. And in that moment, not be engaging in lust, at least not the way that Jesus is talking about. Lust, to be more specifically and to get at it, um, is put in somebody else's words like this. It's a deep-seated, compulsive desire that consumes and devours. In imagination, it attacks and rapes. And mentally, it contemplates and commits adultery. Because people have souls to entertain the fantasy to act out on it physically, or even imagine, though they never find themselves in the same room with you, towards a person who has a soul. You do damage to them and yours. Sex, and good sex, not lust in its wicked form. Sex is extremely personal. It is designed so that Physically, there is no way to be closer to another human being. You are literally entering into one another. And for that reason, it is powerfully integrated. It integrates and unifies in ways that nothing else can. At least not in the physical level. Conversely, lust is depersonal. And it is disintegrating of relationships and culture and humanity and your life as a whole. It is corrosive. It is powerful. 
and it has already been released in huge tsunamis-like waves over everyone who lives in America right now. It's crazy, actually. We all talk about how like we're like in an over-sexualized culture right now. I've actually done a lot of reading, and there's a lot of sociological work to say that we might not be in the pinnacle of sexual sexuality in our culture. We might be just as a star burns brightest into a supernova the moment before it extinguishes, experiencing the storm before the death of sex in our culture. Which again, you're like, man, if that's where we're at, we got a really funny way of showing it. But actually, this is very true if you just look at, I mean, this has been thought just longer than just our culture moment. C.S. Lewis, 50 years removed, said this about British culture, very reflective of our current culture, but again, even further down the line. He said this, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? I think you might conclude if you saw that. This isn't Lewis's thoughts, though I think he's actually getting at it. Those people aren't overly stuffed, overly sensitized or desensitized. They're starving. And similarly, you can even see this actually in a culture in our world right now if you look at Japanese culture. I'm not trying to just single out a culture, but it is really interesting there is actually a death clock on Japan right now because the birth rate is not as fast as the death rate. That they are, the average woman is having 1.4 children, where all sociolo- sociologists will agree that in order to have a healthy, sustained society, you need to have 2.1 children per child. They have gotten to a dangerous point. This is like the point where they're desperately kind of saying, like, how can we reverse this trend? And a lot of it will go up to the point of saying, well, it's because we have so pushed people to a level of career and drivenness and busy and and focused on life all the time because email is in your pocket and goes home with you, that people are working crazy hours, and so they get home and are either exhausted to have sex, or women are increasingly have to choose between having a family or having a career and are increasingly choosing the career and finding themselves, therefore, not having as many children. I think that that's true, and very true, because it's also true about our culture. Uh, We're actually at a 1.7 birth rate, so we're actually below health as well. Not as drastic, but it's it's getting there. It's it's dropping. And so that's actually true of of modernized cultures. But I actually talked with a a missionary who had been in Japan for a few years and had come back to the U.S., actually spent a lot of his adult life there, I believe. And he said, hey, that is true, but just boots on the ground – me talking with people about the gospel in Japan and kind of finding out what's going on in actual people's lives, there's something that's not getting talked about as much. And again, this is his personal opinion. Maybe somebody will write and discredit this. I don't know. I'm just going off of him. Take him as a worthy source. I know you don't know him. Um, Or to reject him entirely. That's fine. He said, hey, here's what I see. I see a lot of people so wrapped up in virtual and stimulated and streaming and entertained worlds that their life has completely become digitalized. Their social skills have dropped to such a level that it's more uncomfortable to have a relationship than to have a sexual experience 
with a technological aid. Therefore, people literally are getting to the point where they don't know how to talk to each other, at least not at a level they're willing to risk intimacy, even by talking face-to-face. He said there's all sorts of incentives going out to try to get people to engage in relationships, to get married and to have children, and people are turning down the incentive because they'd rather stay in a cocoon. I thought, man, that kind of sucks. Maybe more perverse, but it sounds like us. It sounds like John Mayer in his Rolling Stone article, which I know is famous, I've quoted before. Which he said, yeah, I know, I had to quote him, right? I hadn't hadn't gotten him in 2018 yet. (laughs) When he says, I have so trained myself to a pornographic experience that I find it hard to interact with a real woman anymore. I mean, he's dating some of the most coveted women in the world. And he struggles to interact with them. Because the beauty of sex can only be experienced in its fullness and hitting the button and getting a small dispension of it doesn't give you a little bit of fullness. It gives you the opposite. Here's what it looks again in a positive sense. This is uh, a quote from John White in his book, Eros Defiled. He says, immediate erotic thrill is the most superficially beneficial or benefit of the sex act. I've got to read that again because, A, I botched it, and, B, most of you have spent your whole lives believing the opposite. Immediate erotic thrill is the most superficial benefit of the sex act. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies it can be both profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. It is the healing, concrete sign of what is happening in the whole relationship, the uncovering of our inner selves, our deepest fears and yearnings, As I look tenderly on the body of another and has experienced what it is to feel the tenderness of another's caress, then the one who accepts my touches uh, and touches me most intimately and caresses me with tenderness also caresses my innermost being. So it only makes sense that sexual relations be confined to marriage. For mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment but the delicate fabric of a lifetime's weaving. Each time sex springs from a casual encounter, physical disclosure and touching, some of its life-giving and healing nature is destroyed. I hope you don't hear in that, and therefore you don't hear in Jesus a repression and a disgust with sex, but rather a recognition of that there's something so beautiful and powerful about it that it's not confine it to one relationship so that you'd have less joy It's put it in a context of an entire life's full commitment with another to actually unlock what you've been pushing the button and not receiving. In Hebrew, they have uh, three words that I always talk about when I talk about sex because I think they're important. It's helpful to know. This is how they describe a sexual experience. It starts with raya. Raya is, in a quick translation, I've seen your good, I've seen your bad, and I'm in. I know at this point it's not all gumdrops and rainbows, and I, I'm willing to take on the bad on what I see on you as well as the good. And then you move towards ahava. Ahava 
is really just the wedding commitment, I think. It's the, it's the dude that to us apart. It is this. It is, I'm not going anywhere. No matter what. And then, if you have raya, if it graduates to ahava, and you spend years in developing and creating and cultivating it, you could have a potential to experience dode. And dode, I think, is best translated into a mingling of souls. It's recognizing that intimacy is not found by bodies clashing to exchange body fluid and money. Intimacy is found by two souls weaving themselves together so that you don't get that in your 20s. You don't get it in your 30s. It's something into the 60s and 70s. After walking along and laughing with each other and crying with each other and fighting with each other and apologizing and sacrificing and going through mundane moments, moments where you just find yourselves unable to find anything to talk about anymore. And over years and years and years of that, you might develop into a place where your souls have become woven together so that the physical act and the expression of it is merely a consummation of what has happened with your entire existence. It's powerful. And you might think like, okay, I've seen people in their 60s and 70s, like, I, I don't even know if they're talking to each other. Like, they, they definitely are not having good sex if they're having sex whatsoever. That's because not everyone chooses to push in. And it's really easy to sleep next to another person, sit next to a person, have dinner with them every night, but have been with your entire existence been pulling away for years. You can hold someone's hand and be two very separate people. You can integrate sexually and be further apart than you've ever been. Because you have to intentionally press towards oneness for your entire life. You might say, okay, that sounds beautiful. I, I will admit on some level that does sound like what I probably want. Again, I'm not saying everyone's there, but if you are there with me, then I'm guessing there's also people who just be like, that doesn't reflect my life at all. I mean, whether it be, again, past or present, whether it be just pulling away or, or drowning myself and in, in pressing the button, I find myself in the midst of what the world is called and the Bible is called sexual immorality. And because of that, I find myself with the associated sadness and frustration and isolation that comes with it. And the ironic thing is that only tends to drive us back to pushing the button as if the problem that started it could fix it. So let me lay out to you um, what Jesus is going to say is the path towards healing. And uh, we need to do a little work on it. So uh, read with me, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So you might look at that and be like, okay, 
Uh, that sounds worse, actually, than the current situation. I mean, maybe, actually, some of you are like, I don't know what would be worse or better than that, but it's best as a coin flip. And let's get into the idea that some people have taken this to just be as literal as Jesus was talking about, that this is bodily mutilation in order to save sexual chast- uh, chastity. Origen, who's a church father, literally stepped into this by castrating himself. You can go that route. Um, I don't think it will work because you can cut off your left hand and lust with your right. You can gouge out your eye and cut off both hands and still lust with the remainder. You can cut and lacerate yourself until you're nothing but a stump and still be a human being with a soul who longs to be known and fully known and yet loved. And so the drive is still there. So you can do what I think many people have done and I think helpfully done and I think is true of the text, but I'm actually going to, in a moment, reveal that I think there's a deeper level here. And you can say this is hyperbolic, and Jesus has been hyperbolic already in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week he was with anger, and this week he's saying like, hey, you need to have such a drastic mindset that it's like you'd be willing to cut off your hands and gouge out your eyes if it would protect you from the corrosive power of lust. And so in that, you need to do what he did last week, Jesus, with anger, in which he said, hey, have urgency and magnitude in your life to address it. Because here's why you need that. Being washed by grace will wash all of the stain of sin in one single moment. But it may, and most likely, and as I've seen, does not wash the consequences of that sin away. That the way that we continue to distort our ability to experience intimacy with one another through pressing the button, will contr- it will travel with you into marriage. It will travel with you into your singleness. It will go along and you will cultivate for your life a reversal of that that might you might experience some great fruit early in life or you might find it going into the grave alongside you. So have a certain level of urgency about you because you can be washed white as snow and one day you can be fully restored on the other side of eternity. But Jesus is saying, hey, there's a whole life I have for you now that every decision is going to be more than just a benchmark or a notch in a bedpost on your soul that you can't imagine what you're doing to yourself right now. And so having a sense of urgency is good. And with that, I think this is arguing for a really helpful thing that people have said in the past, which is have a personal strategy for how you engage this in your life. And so it might mean you approach entertainment completely different than other people's. You might be like, that's fine for others, but not for me. And it might be things that are like, again, not even on the PG-13 scale or maybe just on the PG-13 scale. I mean, you might be like this since I talked with someone this week. It's just like, I don't, like, he heard my rant on superhero movies. And he's like, I don't disengage with superhero movies like you do last week because I think they're dumb. I do it because the costume design is completely designed to uh, drive lust. And so he's like, I just, I, I can't go to the summer blockbuster. 
That's personal to me, but it's true for me, and so I engage that way. Or it might be how you deal with technology. Maybe you don't have Wi-Fi in your house. You would get promoted faster if you did. You'd respond to more emails. You'd be more readily available. But you might lose your soul in the process. It's not a worthy trade. For a few, a $10,000 raise a couple years earlier? Are you kidding? Or you might just have software that can, you can freeze the Wi-Fi in your house. Somebody can engage everything that you look at that's questionable. It, it, it can, you have to send, a, you know, tell someone, hey, you got to unfreeze so I can, like, actually get back in to check my email here. Whatever you have to do might be beneficial. It might be if you're in a relationship, as I've always advocated and will continue to do, if you're not married, never alone. You're always alone together with someone else. And because Steak and Shake has 24-hour-a-day service and impossibly slow service that you can get to know their entire lives before you get married while you wait for your shake, you have plenty of time. Utilize it as a grace of God because that's the only time it will be in your life. And so maybe that's how you do I don't know what it is for you. You need to constantly be reverse engineering when you find yourself falling into sin and saying, how do I go two steps forward and cut off there now? You, absolute, I, you absolutely have to be in community about this. What stays in the dark gets empowered in the dark. What comes to the light gets killed. And, and so... It's not like it comes to light and instantly. I mean, like, you continually have to be in a community. And I talked with uh, Daniel Niles this week, who I think I saw in this service. Daniel here? There you go. Uh, Daniel has just, he's engaged me because he just is very passionate about working with men in this area and putting them in community where they can be open, honest, and find uh, help together. And I know you've started groups in the past, and I was like, Daniel, I, I, I want to put you forward this week, but I want to, like, overcommit your time. But he's like, hey, like, I can start more groups if it will help more guys. And if there's women here today, because I don't want to pretend, I mean, we're in a wildly different culture here, which is why Jesus is only talking to the males, because women divorcing their husbands and go-grabbing another just didn't exist then. Women dressing in such a way that would be sexually tempting was not a thing that they could do without being killed. And so we, uh, I recognize that pornography, the largest growing demographic, is female. And so there might be a just, you might need to reach out to me to get in contact for, uh, to Daniel if you're a male, or reach out to me, and we can find a woman who's willing to do this on that side of things. I'm sure we have tons of deacons, tons of people who'd be like, yeah, I'll step into that and I'll help organize this. It's important. And uh, with, with the uh, sense of needing community to do this, let me just really quickly um, do a very risky and dangerous thing. And as a man, talk to the women for just one moment. Please give me grace here because this is somewhat of a risk. Um, there are ways in which just culture is saying, hey, this is okay to dress and this is okay to present yourself. That are maybe driven from a place of just like naive, like I just never thought of it that way. Or opinions of just like guys should be able to like get over that. Or maybe it's even like an intent of like I deeply need to be noticed. I'm not going to judge your heart. I don't know. But there is a choice that you, are, that you can make that can help 
many brothers and think of them as that. As brothers who, and don't buy the lie that every guy is just laying down and falling to this, like it's inevitable. There are guys I know that are fighting tooth and nail. They are, they really, they are good men, not perfect men. They are good men. They want to honor and show honor. And, and there's a choice that you, they can't make that will radically impact their ability. That does not mean do not hear. If you dress in a certain way, that he has a right to say something or treat you in any way. Not true. Men, that is not true. The Me Too campaign, all things have proven there are things that, there are liberties men have taken that you can't do here at Selma. And there are now multiple men who do not attend here because that was their intent. We want you to be in community. You might not be able to be here if that's what you're going for. So then, real quick, and this actually is quick, but it's a powerful. I think there's a deeper reality of what Jesus is getting at when he talks about removing eyes and hands. And actually, he's going to give you a really quick uh, literary lesson because it's going to bring up the idea of synecdoche. Synecdoche is the literary term which chooses a piece of something to refer to the whole. So if I say to you, those are nice wheels, I'm referring to the entirety of the car. Or if I say, hey, get a quick head count, I'm wanting to count the number of people, not actual heads. And so when Jesus says, tear out your eye and cut off your hand, I believe he is, yes, advocating for a drastic non-sin management. I'll get 20% better at lusting this, this week or this year. But going straight for the heart of it because it's that dangerous. But he's also saying, hey, eyes are just a synecdoche in some ways for the way that we see the world. And this, really, my entire goal of this sermon has been trying to do just that. Getting you to see that there is a lie that all of us believe as it were gospel in our culture. That this is how you have to engage or this won't be a big deal or you can simply have your cake and eat it too or by pushing the button eventually you will be fully known and fully loved. And it is a lie. It's damnable. And it's crushing our, our lives and our culture and individuals. And there is all that you have desired is real. It is possible. And it is found in ways that we, yes, maybe know, oh, yeah, that might be a morally right way to do. It's not Jesus just laying down, hey, I want you to be morally pious. It's I've designed you. I know how you work. And I know how your souls will flourish. So would you trust me as w one who is able to determine reality better than you as one who is eternal to reality? A and so that is the invitation of seeing reality as it exists and seeing through the false reality that a lot of money has been spent and a lot of lies are told on a daily and annual and lifelong basis for you to believe. Some of them, you have spent that money and you have told that lie to yourself. And then similarly, then hands being an expression of how we live, how we practically just walk throughout our day, 
is aligning, hey, I'm going to cut out a way of seeing the world so that I might see reality, and I am a cutting out a way of practically living so that I might practice a pathway towards reality and actually finding the experience that I most desire. And I know you can say, like, Kent, you're the one who doesn't live in reality. I've tried to do that a thousand times. I try to do that at the beginning of every day and find myself a failure by the end of it. Where's the power to do that? And don't you see the power is in the overarching invitation of Jesus himself. And don't just take that as like, oh, okay, just put Jesus on it. No, hear me, because I think this is huge. All the intimacy in the world from another human being in true accomplished dove, a true weaving of souls together, will not fully satisfy the ability to be fully known and fully loved and fully known and fully love another. I say that as someone who's married, that there's things that I know about my wife and she knows about me that you guys will never know about either of us, though you should spend a thousand lifetimes living somewhat tangentially to our lives. You're not fully integrated in in the way that a marriage can be. There's things about her childhood that she's described to me, and I can imagine, but I can't experience on, an, on a first-hand basis with her. There's thoughts that I have and she has right now that we are subconscious to and can't express to each other. I can only be fully known and fully loved by a maker who has made, designed, and is omnisciently aware of who I am. And... I can only fully love an all-powerful God who empowers me through his spirit to fully love and to fully know him. That is what we're saying when we desire you to have intimacy with God. That is a definition of spiritual disciplines if you want one, by the way. People are like, yeah, okay, I got to read my Bible and pray. Read your Bible, yes. There's information and teaching and instruction and aligning yourself to, to the truths of who God said he was and has revealed himself that's needed. Pray, yes. There's an interaction of talking and experiencing and being shaped by, by expressing your desires and fears directly to God that's needed. But it has to go way beyond that. I mean, it is a daily, moment-by-moment moment experience of a present and intimacy with God. And that's true whether you're driving or shopping or working or sleeping or sitting there and doing nothing. It is practicing and cultivating a lifestyle that is eternally present to God and is eternally aware of the presence of God to you. And only in developing and cultivating over a lifetime that kind of intimacy will you experience the true being known and being loved and knowing and loving so that you might find that you never experience a sexual experience like because you have been either called or put in a place of singleness. You know, Jesus actually never experienced sexuality in its fullness on this earth. And he doesn't really seem to be repressed or lack of being known. He actually seems to have a really compelling life. Seems to be completely intimately connected to the Father. And so apparently... Sexual connection cannot be the only thing that produces it. In fact, I don't think produces it at the core. Similarly, you can be in a marriage where you're experiencing the best of dode in sex. 
and still finding it lacking, but having a realistic expression and an outlook to saying that this is powerful and healing and binding, but not what ultimately fulfills my soul. And so I invite you, brothers and sisters, to consider how you have been seeing life, how you have been aligning your actions and your living daily to that reality, and come forward to perform the action of if you believe and have aligned yourself to say that I am desiring to be intimately connected with the God who knows me and loves me, then to come forward and take the meal of communion with us. It is a symbol and a powerful moment that, similar to the sex act, is a moment of complete intimacy because it is taking what is representing and on a spiritual plane administering to you the literal body and the blood of Jesus into you. It is meant to be extremely intimate. And so in a moment for those who that is your desire, that is your cultivation of your heart, that is what you have claimed and called and, and, and stepped towards, then come and eat and drink. You can take a piece of the bread at a station, tear it off and dip it into the cup. And it'll be gluten-free up to my right and your left. If you're here and, again, you're s- you are engaging with us on it, I'm not sure about Jesus yet. Then we want to design a service where you have no need to experience any sort of pretense. And so please stay in your seat and pray. Or consider prayer for the first time. We'll be here to pray for you or for anyone. Again, this week, might be a time that it's really scary to go up and be prayed for because, oh man, what are they, what's that person getting prayed for? We don't know. But maybe God really wants to do something in your heart and your mind and your body by praying, by ha- they having you prayed over. We'll have men and women present so that you can have the appropriate gender to just say, and maybe you don't have to say much. Maybe it's just, hey, I, I can't get into it now, but I need you to just pray for me and how I've been seeing the world. I don't know what it is for you, but it could be really powerful. Let me pray for us now. Father God, Lord, give us eyes to see, which you seem to be uh, saying through your scripture is a pretty big deal. And so give us eyes to see real reality as it is. Lord, let us see lies that we've bought into. Let us see ways that we've integrated them into our lives and cultivated our hearts towards them. And therefore, our actions are effortlessly flowing towards them. And Lord, let your redemption come for those here who, again, are racked by guilt and shame. Who are now worried to take communion because of their present actions. But Lord, as is always true, none of us have purity stories. We all have redemption stories. And so, Lord, do the work of presenting freedom to someone who can be fully free and fully forgiven and fully as white as a bride on her wedding day in this moment. Though, yes, consequence might still bear weight in our lives. The condemnation is no longer present. And so, Lord, if that's true, maybe for someone for the first time today, allow them to come and be intimately connected with you in communion that represents the purity that comes white as snow when we engage the body and the blood that was the sacrifice for our sin and the presentation of our purity and righteousness. Lord, 
give us an ability to actually want what you want for us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.